Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible today, we are headed to the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 4. do invite you to turn there with me. And as you're doing so, I'm going to invite you to just take a moment and quiet yourself as we ask God to speak to us through the scriptures today. I'm grateful for your presence, oh God. I hear the words of scripture that say, where can I go from your presence? If I descend to the depths, you are there. If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. I'm grateful that you are always there and with us. I rejoice with those who rejoice this week for the successes, for the good news, for the celebration. And I weep with those who weep, for those who have come in today disappointed and frustrated. Would you speak to us regardless where we find our heart today. We're grateful for your voice that comes through your word, through your, through your scriptures. And so we'll be willing to receive whatever you want to say to us. Amen. So this last week, I applied malorganite to my lawn. I knew it was going to rain And so I got the bags out. The fertilization schedule says July 4th-ish is one of the times to put that stuff down. So I opened up that bag and um, got a funny smell because of what it is. And I put it in the fertilizer uh, and I started going and it was dry so it kicks up and got it in my shoes and everywhere and My wife is sitting on the porch and she said, what is that smell? It's malorganite. It's good for the lawn. And when I was done, I just, it just felt dirty. You ever, you ever use that stuff? I just, it just, I'm like, I got to get this off of me. So I take a shower, you know, and clean. And though it was grimy, though it smells funny, it was for me pointing to something better, hopefully a green lawn. Like the, the, the end goal was, was worth the effort. Over the course of this summer, we have been wading into some of, the, some of the narratives, some of the stories of the Old Testament. While some of them are inspiring, others are, are hard. Others have a bit of an odd odor to them. And some, when you read them at first, make you feel a little grimy. Because see, not all of the Bible is nice and pretty, and that's what I appreciate so much about it. Much of the Bible is raw and honest. The challenge that we have, however, is is moving from words on a page to living 
the text, living the passage. Noticing that, that God is working gracefully and intentionally through all of history, even in those moments that do seem a bit dark. The book of Judges chapter 4 is where we're going to focus our attention this morning. And it's a harder story. It's hard to interpret, hard to apply, really. Uh, It's not a story that you're going to find in a children's Bible. The book of Judges is fairly violent and disturbing at, at points. If the book of Judges were made into a film, it would probably carry an R rating because of the violence that you find within the pages. If you want to understand the the trajectory of this point in the history of Israel, you go to the very last chapter of the book of Judges, chapter 21, because it summarizes nicely what's happening in this, this story. Israel had no king, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When you have a society in which everyone does what is right in their own eyes with no regard for morality or ethics or boundaries, what you're left with is chaos and destruction. If you've ever seen the film Mad Max, you know what a society looks like when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So as we begin, I want to set the context for this entire book and then then focus specifically on chapter 4. At the beginning of the book of Judges, Joshua, the leader of Israel, has died. Now, if you've been with us through the summer, then we've looked at several characters in the history of Israel. We began with Moses, Moses, the one who freed the people from slavery in Egypt. Moses, the one that confronted Pharaoh, led Israel in the desert for 40 years. Right before Israel crosses the Jordan into the promised land, Moses dies and Joshua takes over the leadership of the nation of Israel. Joshua is a young, brave man. Now, as we Go into the book of Judges. Joshua has died. Israel has crossed the Jordan and is now in the promised land. And because Joshua has died, the leadership of Israel has been given to a series of judges. Now, when you hear judge, don't think judge in a courtroom with a gavel. Think political leader who is responsible for groups of people. Now, what you find in the book of Judges is this cycle of good judges and wicked judges, good leadership and bad leadership. There's a lot of corruption in this part of Israel's history. And what we know from our own society is that leadership, bad leadership, whether it's in government or religion or business, bad leadership always is destructive. So we come to Judges chapter 4, and we see a cycle of, of bad leadership, and we read these words in the opening chapter, opening verse of chapter 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The operative word here is again. It implies a cycle in which 
God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, are going through these motions of, of obeying God and disobeying God, doing good and doing evil, and it happens over and over and over. Now, part of the challenge that the nation of Israel is facing is they disobeyed God's command to drive out the Canaanites when they entered into the promised land. Now, the reason that God asked Israel to drive out the Canaanites is because the Canaanites had this wicked way of living. They participated in child sacrifice, human trafficking, slavery, all kinds of vile things. And so the command of God to Joshua and Israelites was to drive these people out of the land so you are not influenced by their ways. Because I think we can all agree child sacrifice is bad. Human human trafficking is bad. These are all horrible things. It was a, a dark and broken time. And yet, Israel did not obey God. They drove some of the people out, but not all of them, thinking maybe we can live together peacefully. And it just didn't work out that way. So Israel begins to co-opt some of the detestable practices of the Canaanites. And so this chapter, first of all, serves as a warning that turning from God has its consequences. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. Ehud was one of the judges. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hagayim, And because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, and they cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. That phrase echoes the same cry of the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt. Now, Israel finds itself once again in slavery because they violated the covenant. In the Old Testament, there was a common practice referred to as the cutting of a covenant whenever two individuals wanted to forge a relationship that went well beyond friendship, went well beyond business relations. It was, it was a sort of a blood bond. When a covenant was cut, two individuals were making vows to one another to be in a relationship to care for and protect one another. And if the vows of the covenant were broken, there were some serious consequences attached to them. Now, the cutting of a covenant involved an entire ceremony, which we don't have time to get into, but one of the, the parts of the ceremony was, was the sacrificing of an animal, laying out the parts of the sacrificed animal on the ground, and the two that were making the covenant would walk between the animal parts and say to each other, if I violate the terms of this covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to me. It was a very graphic ceremony, one that was intended to be binding. It was a common practice in the times of the Old Testament. Now, we don't have anything like a covenant ceremony in our Western culture. The closest thing that we have to a covenant is is marriage, in which two people stand together at an altar and make vows and commitments to one another, vows that are supposed to be unbreakable. And if you do break the vow of the covenant, there are consequences attached to it, right? And so there's this covenant made, but but then what we see historically is that, that God himself 
chooses to make a covenant with a nation, with Israel. And the boundaries and the ideals and the expectations of the covenant are laid out in Scripture. Now, at this point in the story, Israel has once again violated the boundaries of the covenant, and so the consequences, 20 years of slavery once again. This is the result of what I believe to be unresolved spirituality. Living with the expectation of the rules, but not the transformation of the heart. Living with the expectation of a boundaries without the inner transformation of the heart is unsustainable. Rules without passion and transformation often lead to dead, dry, legalistic religion. Maybe you've wrestled with questions like, what is it that I actually believe? I mean, those are questions of unresolved spirituality. How should I actually live in regards to what it is that I believe? I mean, that's the question that Israel is asking. Yes, we have this covenant with God, and there are boundaries to this covenant, but there are some things about the Canaanites that we find attractive. Maybe there are some practices that we can incorporate into our own life, leaving this feeling of unsettledness. I want to do good. I want to walk in the way of God, but there are some other things over here in society that I kind of like too. I came to faith 32 years ago as a teenager. I was a part of a youth group. Our youth group met on Monday evenings And so I would go on Monday evenings to our youth worship gathering and I would gather with my friends and we would sing worship songs much like we do here. And I'd sometimes raise my hands and there'd be this passion for God and maybe even cry some tears because I was so moved by God's presence. And I would sit and I would listen to my youth pastor give a sermon. I would say, yes, I want that. I want to live that way. I want to live under God's way and his ethics and morale, it's all good. And then youth group would end, and I would get in my car, and I would drive home, and I would go into my living room, I'd turn on the television to MTV, and I would watch Beavis and Butthead, if you're familiar with that. And looking back, there is this seeming contradiction, okay? I, I would go to church and worship God, And then I would go and watch a television program that is rather vulgar, if you've ever seen it. I mean, there's a, there's a bit of a contradiction there. I mean, it's easy to live within boundaries when somebody's watching, when I'm in church with my friends raising my hands, but then when nobody's watching, well, it's easy to just, you know, Do a little of this and a little of that. It's why I think that when when children are raised in, in in good homes with good parents, but maybe are a little too strict, and then the kids move out or get their own place or go to college, some things kind of go off the rails because rules without transformation, it's not sustainable. 
Or you come to church and you see someone's church persona, the spiritual person, but then you do business with them out in the real world and it's a totally different person. See, outward behavior centered on expectation without inner transformation, it's not sustainable. There's a difference between have to and want to. See, for the Israelites, this chapter begins by telling us that this man named Ehud is dead. He was a judge. He was one that held Israel accountable. He was the one that was watching. But when he was dead, they could not resist the temptation to be like the Canaanites, to be like everyone else. And so they violated the terms of the covenant and found themselves under the hands of an oppressive king named Jabin. They came with a consequence. However, what we see is that the arc and narrative of the scripture always leads to God keeping his side of the covenant and rescuing his people. See, God always provides a way. So we come to Judges chapter 4, and we're introduced to a character named Deborah. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Laphadoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their dispute decided. She sent for Barak, son of Ebaniam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands." So again, Israel is enslaved to this king named Jabeth, who's evil and, and wicked, but God is going to rescue his people, and so he uses a woman named Deborah. Now, the word Deborah means bee, like, bzz, like, like bee that stings. So God is going to use this woman whose name is Bee, who is described as a prophet, someone who speaks the words of God. She's described as a military leader, commanding armies, and is a judge serving as leader for the people. And what we'll notice in the redemptive arc of this story is that God always rescues his people and sometimes uses the most unlikely to do it. Because the story of the Bible is the story of God rescuing his people even from the most dire of circumstances. And so she says to this military commander named Barak, go, for God is going to save his people through you. Verse 8, Barak says to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, because... But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went to Barak Kadesh, and there Barak summoned Zebulon and went up to Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Canaanite had left the other Canaanites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree of Zananim. These names are harder to pronounce than you might think, so just... (laughs) Let's just get that out there. 
I continue. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinayim, had gone to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Herosh Hegaim to the Kishon River, and all his men in 900 chariots filled, fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given you, in, this, is, this day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Horesh Hagayim, and all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword, and not a man was left. So this leader, Deborah, says, go. This is God's will. He's going to rescue his people. And so with this prophetic voice, she declares the will of God. I wonder if you've ever been in that place in your life in which you just knew the will of God, in which you just knew, God, I'm, God what am I supposed to do? Have you ever prayed that prayer? What am I supposed to do, God? What is your will for my life? I think we make it a bit too complicated sometimes. Oh, it would be nice to have a Deborah that would simply come and say, this is God's will for your life. But much like the Israelites, while we desire the will of God, we don't always want to follow the word of God. See, the Israelites wanted God's will, wanted God's protection, wanted God's way, but they did not always want the words of the covenant. And yet the will of God always begins with the word of God. And when you live by the word of God, it's much easier to find yourself in the will of God. The will of God, which is always redemptive. The will of God that sometimes uses the most unlikely, seemingly invisible people to shape the future. So we come to Judges chapter 4, verse 17 now, and this is where the story turns a bit more dark. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Canaanite. Jael went outside to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. She, so he went into the tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave it to him and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, Is anyone there? saying no. But Jael, Herbert's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer, and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Aren't you inspired? (laughs) So this man, Sisera, who's the commander of the army that's oppressing Israel, flees to the tent of someone he believes is an ally, She gives him a nice warm blanket, some nice warm milk, and he gets sleepy, and he goes to sleep dreaming of wonderful things, believing that he's going to be protected. 
and she takes a tent spike. Now, in the days of the Old Testament, women were good at spikes because they, women were typically the ones that would pitch the tents. So she knew what she was doing. She grabbed that spike and, well, things start getting a little grimy. Things get a little graphic and a little violent. She drove the tent peg through his temple and he died. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went up with her and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Jael is never mentioned again in the Bible. I don't believe that the Bible is advocating violence as much as it is recording what happened. That even when things take a dark turn, when plans unfold in the seemingly most vile of ways, that God is still there redeeming his people. So you have to also consider the times in which this story took place. Because sometimes when you're dealing with the Old Testament passages that seem to be morally challenged, we should remember where in redemptive history this took place. And not judge it by later and higher ethical standards. Phillips Elliott, who's a theologian, writes this of this story of J.L. These are rough times of which we are reading. When human flesh was cheap, such evil deeds cannot be justified or defended. They can only be understood, and that dimly, on the basis of a ruthless age and so intense a concern for Israel's life and faith that whatever contributed to that end was condoned. Yet even the ancient writers did not regard this act as inspired by God. And when in the early Christian era, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews compiled his great chapter on faith, Hebrews chapter 11, and mentioned the many judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Japheth, the one that was not mentioned who displayed such deceit and violence was Jael. She was not even mentioned in his list. So how does all this resolve? I mean, we want a good resolution. We don't like stories that don't have a good ending. Have you ever watched a movie and like, that's how it ends? Well, the arc of the story of the Bible ends in its fulfillment with Christ. Because everything is pointing to Jesus. It's what the writer of Hebrews chapter 11 composes when he reflects back on history, including this story. They write, and what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Japheth or about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They went to death 
by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Now I will admit that today's story from Judges chapter 4 is difficult. It's hard to understand, it's hard to interpret, and it's difficult to apply. Even with my best shot this morning, I'll probably go back to my office and say, wow, man, I missed that, or I should have said that, or I should have said this, or I didn't think that through enough. And yet, in the midst of all of it, the arc and the narrative of the Bible is always pointing to Jesus, always pointing on redemption, always asking us to fix our eyes on him. Because when you move into the New Testament, God no longer establishes a covenant with a nation, but he chooses to establish a covenant with you. It's what he did on the cross. And so here we are gathered together on Sunday morning with a bizarre story but with the hope of Jesus and the hope of redemption. So maybe, maybe, maybe for you, maybe the story really is about a warning. Maybe there's a path that you're on and you need to get off it because there could be consequences. Or maybe others of us, we sit here today with unresolved spirituality and I'm convinced that we serve a God that meets us right in the middle of our unresolved spirituality. Maybe you're here this morning and the faith that you have has been handed down to you by somebody else and you've never truly made it your own. And today Jesus is inviting you to to fix your eyes on him and make it your own. Or it's possible you're here today and you're in need of rescue. Maybe you're in a dire situation and you need a miracle. Or... Maybe like J.L., you feel a bit invisible, and when, when people do notice you, it's for something, something bad. And what I want to tell you is that God does want to use you, and God does use the most unlikely of people. Because in the end, because of the work of, of Deborah, this prophet, this leader, this, this military commander, because of her work and the unlikely work of a name, J.L., Judges chapter 5 ends with this phrase, and the land was at peace for 40 years because God is one who honors his covenant. So today, oh God, as we sit together with this bizarre story, I, I do <clears throat> appreciate how raw and honest it is. I appreciate the vulnerability of the Bible and 
makes me have greater faith. Because you choose to use people like me who are at times misguided and selfish and rude, but also full of hope. And if we remember anything from this morning, may we remember that you are a God who keeps your end of the deal. You are a God who keeps the covenant even when I continually break it. But there you are, choosing once again to rescue me from myself. And so for that, I'm grateful. Amen.